0: When I read that, I, I have to say I had two questions, and one question was, did Jennifer Lopez really say that? Because I think I've heard that somewhere before, like for my whole life. And uh, the the other question I had was, if I attach my name to an equally obvious quote, will people think, wow, Ernest is brainy? Uh, so let's try this out. Uh, most of you throughout the, the whole week, you've been being told or you've been telling other people, wash your hands or wash your hands frequently. So we could change that up a little bit. Wash with your fingers and get two thumbs up. This has been a brainy quote by Ernest Jones. You like that one? Okay, maybe not. Let's, let's just move through this pretty quickly. Uh, how about this one? You can defeat the Kung Flu with hand-to-hand combat. Okay, now if you just chuckled, don't judge me. And if you're judging me, I'm sorry. Uh, please try not to judge me. Uh, but there are all kinds of ways that we can say obvious things. that we say obvious things all the time. Don't be a dope wash with water and soap. And we just remind our kids, just get those hands clean. Why do we remind other people of things they already know? Because they already know these things. You know to wash your hands frequently. You you know uh, how to practice good hygiene. Why do we remind people? Why are we reminded so frequently? Here's why. Because we forget. Because we have a tendency to coast. Because we have this tendency to cut corners and get kind of lazy and get a little bit passive. And so let me just ask you this question. Why then do you think people tell you from time to time or say it in different ways, you get out of it what you put into it? Why are you told this? Why am I told this so frequently? Because we get passive. Because we get lazy. We start thinking we're going to get something out of it without bringing anything to the table. And just because God has set the table, so to speak, just because he has given us a gift by his grace, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, that doesn't mean that we don't wash our hands before coming to the table. That doesn't mean that we don't bring it. That doesn't mean that we get to just receive something passively. When it comes to the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you receive it actively. You've got to be intentional and and open and focused, which by the way, if you don't know this already, we are going to be practicing the Lord's Supper together at the end of the service. Uh, we would mentioned this, I think, uh, on emails and, and midweek, but if you did not get the notice or you didn't notice that we were going to be doing this or you'd forgotten, go ahead and go to your refrigerator get some juice, apple juice, orange juice. If you don't have grape juice or or wine or whatever it is that you choose and get some bread because we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper at the end. But the the challenge here to us at the front end of the service is simple. Bring it, bring yourself, or or put a little bit differently, don't expect to come away filled if you're not willing to, you know, cut the meal, put a fork in it, stick it in your mouth, chew, swallow. You got to pick up the glass, you got to drink or or speaking less metaphorically. As I'd mentioned last week, I'm going to mention again, if you're going to get something out of the worship service, if it's actually going to be a worship service, if you're going to experience the presence of God, then you need to do two things. You need to focus and you need to remain open. And by focus, what I mean is you need to give your undivided attention to God in this service. You need to behave at home the way you would if you were here in the building at 10th and Main. Whatever you do or don't do here is something that you would want to do or not do wherever you are. And, and I know for the people here, none of the people that are here are, are texting friends. They're not making phone calls. They're not folding laundry. Nobody's on a treadmill or paying attention to the kids in the back. No. This is a time where we focus. Whatever you would do here, do there. There has to be focus, but there also has to be an openness and an availability to God. As we saw last week, David cries out, Oh God, you're my God. Earnestly, I seek you. And because David recognizes that God is his God, he's expecting to find God. He's expecting God to show up. He's expecting the availability of the Father because as, as Christians, we know through Jesus Christ, God's the father. We have access to him. He's going to come when we cry. We're going to run to him without any hindrance. So there is this expectation that we're going to encounter God. Don't treat the service like background noise. I know that typically on television, here's what happens. We put it as background noise. We do that with our devices and, and personal devices our iPads and iPhones and all the rest. And that's entirely normal. But because this is a worship service, we're treating the medium of television and this online presence a little bit differently. This is live. We're actually worshiping together. So focus and remain open. Do your part. Bring yourself to the table, and you're going to come away filled. Now, this morning, we're doing things a little bit differently. So on the front end, there's this call to worship, and it's actually part of the sermon because we're concerned about this question of how do I experience God? We're going to be addressing that now and we're going to be addressing that question toward the end of the service after the singing and the, you know, the the worship and the giving of the offerings and the prayers and all the rest. At the end, before we do communion, we're going to have another message the same length as this one. It's going to be about 20 minutes shorter because this is going to be about 20 minutes on the front end. So we'll all finish on time. But the text that we're going to go back to again today for both messages on the front end and the back end is Psalm chapter 63. So I'm going to invite you to stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word now I just mentioned that whatever we do here you should do there and so if you're not standing you ought to be standing okay so I'm going to give you a second chance let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word okay just so you know there's that little camera on your your iPad or your television set that the FBI says you've got to be careful because people could be watching you. I'm one of those people. Okay, Colin Searing, who's an expert in electronics, has enabled me right now to see you, and some of you are still sitting down. Just want you to know that. So one more time, let's go ahead and stand. I just said, you know, you only get out of it what you put into it. Let's 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 go with this. All right. Everybody standing. Praise the Lord. Now, out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word, we're going to read Psalm chapter 63 and we're going to read the whole of the chapter. And by the way, there are a few words that are highlighted in UT Orange that I want you to pay attention to. And the the reason for the UT Orange is we know in heaven the streets are gold, but the sidewalks are burnt orange. Okay. And uh, the reason I'm highlighting those verses or those statements in the verses is just to let you know that worship or experiencing God is a high participation sport. And we see that really clearly in Psalm 63. So here we go. A Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. So David is in a desert, like many of us are in a desert or wilderness of sorts. God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. And Jesus said elsewhere, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus tells us to seek and to ask and to knock because he knows that God is available. When we come seeking for him, God is there to be found. This is what's taught over in uh, Acts chapter 17, for example, that God set things up for us to seek after him because God wants to be found. Hebrews eleven six tells us he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If we seek his righteousness, his kingdom and his righteousness, we find it and other things happen. The whole idea here is we seek because when we seek, we find. God guarantees it. That's how He set things up. But there is the active participation in finding. God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. You, you gotta open your eyes. You gotta look for it. There's an activity here. Because of your, because your love is better than life, I, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you. And we're going to talk about singing and praising God in just a moment. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. Uh, so you have an opportunity to do this. If you're at home and you don't typically do this, well, now's a good chance. Maybe nobody else is watching except the Lord. And you can try this out. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. You wash your hands. You come and you partake. You you eat. You swallow. You you, you take the cup, you, you drink. There's participation in tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. And some of you are saying, well, David sure does talk a lot about singing. What's the big deal about singing? Okay, we will get to that in just a second. Be patient. Hold on. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you. In Christian worship, we never set our minds aside. We're always thinking, we're asking questions, we are reasoning together. In in Christian meditation, you don't set your mind aside. You're always mindful in Christian meditation. That's the way we experience God, always with the mind. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, I I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Okay, may God bless, reading his word. You may be seated. Uh, as you can see from what we just read, experiencing God involves your participation. God wants us to participate. And part of the participation that God expects of you and me is singing. And it is, by the way, a privilege to, to sing to the Lord that he wants our, our singing. I was reminded after the first service that in, in other traditions, like Islam, people do not sing to Allah. He does not want the singing. It's, it's offensive to think that you could come into his presence and sing to God and God would, would really care or that he would really want that, that we could treat him like a lover or like a father. But in Christianity, in the Bible, we come to God and, and we sing. Why? Because God's pleased by our singing, And it ought to be enough to just simply say, God wants you to sing, so sing. In fact, if we are going to experience God for who God is as the ultimate, the one who is uh, the whole reason, then our hearts ought to be to please God. If if we're going to experience God as God, we need to be all about God. And so if God says sing, we sing. It's not that complicated. Now, some of us are saying, wait a second, if praising God, experiencing God involves my singing, well, I'm not so wild about that because I'm not a good singer. Okay, I get that. Uh, I'm not a great singer either. Uh, some of you are not great singers. I, I believe you. I, I, rem- I remember s- sitting next, next to some of you. Okay, I get it. But if you don't like to sing, here's what you can do. Turn up your television. Uh, we've got the game turned up about 50% higher than normal. So if you turn up your TV or your personal listening device, you can drown yourself out or you can drown out the other people that you're with. But you can sing. And some of you are still saying, but I don't know, that just feels a little bit weird. Listen, it's not as weird as, as it may seem at first because this is not pre-recorded, okay? This is live. Okay, this, this is happening right here in this moment. So as you're singing, you are singing with, with Alan in a moment and with Kendall and you're participating together with, with Mark and, uh, Aaron and Sarah on the instruments and I'm singing and there's a handful of other people who are here executing the service. You're singing with us and you're singing with other people as you're singing with us. We're not all gathered in the same place, but we are in this moment actually together worshiping the Lord. You don't have to pretend as if this is happening. It's actually happening. And that's why this is a high value to us to do this live so that we can worship together and not pretend that we are. Now, some of you are still thinking, well, wait a second, um, okay, I, I'm not that wild about singing, and this is still sort of weird, and isn't singing just one of those things that we put on the program because that's what religious institutions do, and you have to have it on there, and then you just kind of get past it, and is it really that important? Yes, it is important, and it's not just a thing we do. It's a thing we do because it's significant, and here's why it's so important. Singing, in many respects, is where darkness and light intersect. Um, when the light of God penetrates our darkness, the best response is singing. And when we are in a dark place and we want to encounter the light of God, we sing. Because God has designed us in such a way that when the light of God and the darkness of our moment or the darkness of our loneliness or isolation or depression intersects with God, there's singing. When God and our darkness collide, we sing. And it's significant. And David understood this. Most of us, I think, intuitively understand this. You go over to Psalm chapter 42 and 43, because they actually go together, you find that David is singing, but he's singing in a cave. Now, why would he sing in a cave? It's, it's dark. It's lonely. It's depressing. Well, that's exactly why you sing. If you want to experience the light of God, you, you sing. It's important. And so if you're not going to sing as as God wants you to, you also need to recognize that for yourself, you are missing out because you need this. You have to have this. I uh, I came across this from Jeremy Begbie. He wrote a book on theology and and worship. He's a professor at Duke University. And he tells about a time when he was in South Africa at a very poor church in a very poor neighborhood. And, and he'd learned just before the worship started that there was a house that was just around the corner from where the church was located that was burned to the ground because somebody burned it to the ground. They thought this man was a thief. So they just burned it to the ground. And that's, that was that. About a week earlier, there was a tornado that blew through the town and it ripped apart 50 houses and five people had died. And then uh, right before the service, Jeremy Begbie also learned that there was this young man who was 14 years old, a part of the service, a part of the church, a part of one of the Sunday school classes, who was murdered. A gang had, had basically harassed him and hunted him down and stabbed him to death. So knowing all of this, the pastor steps up to start the service, not with a quote from Jennifer Lopez, but with a prayer. And here's how the prayer began. Lord, you are the creator and the sovereign, but why did the wind come like a snake and tear our roofs off? Why did a mob cut short the life of one of our own children when he had everything to live for? Over and over again, Lord, we are in the midst of death. And as he spoke to the congregation, the congregation began to sigh and moan. And this went on until the pastor stopped praying. And when the pastor stopped praying... Slowly, the congregation began to sing. At first, it was very soft, and then it was very loud, and they sang, and they sang song after song of praise to God, to the God who had in Jesus Christ entered into their trouble and their torment, their turmoil, and their darkness to let them know about a wonderful ending that was coming, an ending that was beyond imagining. And the people sang because in singing, you get a foretaste of the light that is present that we don't always see and the light that is yet to come. David, in his wilderness moment in Psalm 63, sees by faith the, the truth and the grace of God. He sees the light. And he also sees the light at the end, at the end of the tunnel because he recognizes this, this enemy is not going to plague me forever. God will put an end to this. He will restore all things. I don't know how. I don't know when. But David saw God in his future, and he saw God on higher ground. And that's why we sing. We sing to the God who is ahead of us, and we sing to the God who is drawing us up in the words of the Psalms to the top of Mount Zion. God stands above it all. He stands ahead of it all, and he's drawing us into a better future. This is why we sing. Now, I know there's part of you... And there's part of me that when I'm by myself, maybe I don't necessarily want to sing. And maybe right now some of you are saying, this just seems weird. There's part of you that doesn't want to sing. And I'm just telling you, don't listen to that part, okay? Lean into the part of you that knows God wants you to sing and and you need to. So let's sing. Turn up the television. Turn up your personal listening device if you need to. But let's sing together. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for making it possible to experience you. And we thank you for the means of grace. Not that we are saved by singing or raising hands or anything like that. But it is a means that you, by your grace, have given to us to connect with you in a very meaningful, substantial way. Thank you for allowing us to be active participants in your presence eating, tasting, seeing that the Lord is good. Lord, be with us now as we continue in in worship. May we worship with our minds, with our hearts, with our souls, with our spirits, with our bodies, with everything that we have, recognizing that this isn't about us, that this, this worship service is not about me or any of the people up here being on camera and putting on a show, and it's not about anybody else at home watching an event. It's about us pleasing you because we as worshipers are all in this moment on the stage with you as our audience of one. Give us the right mindset that we might see that it's all about you. And as we empty ourselves before you, may we know the joy of being filled in the process, and we pray this in Jesus holy name Amen. Thank you, Alan. As uh, some of you may have noticed, uh, we didn't uh, pass a plate. Uh, you can give online. It's relatively easy to follow, but just go to the website, follow the instructions. Uh, we do appreciate uh, so much your faithfulness in this uh, time of uh, sheltering in place. Uh, the question that we've been asking and hopefully answering is how can, how can I experience God in my life in a, in a powerful way? And this is a really an important question. It's not an academic question because some of us are in a place like David, uh, which he was in the wilderness here. He was in a cave over in uh, Psalm 42, which by the way, uh, one of you out there actually texted me and said the reason he sang in a cave is because the acoustics are better in a cave. Now, I don't know that that's actually a scholarly interpretation, and I won't tell you who was texting during the service, Eric, Dorothy. Uh, but anyways, uh, see, it's not academic. We, we want to experience God in our places of darkness and trial and tribulation. And so this is an incredibly re- relevant question, how do I experience God? Uh, but just to review really, really quickly, uh, what does it mean to experience God? Because people will define experiencing God differently. Uh, and so let's just go at it like this. You know that you're experiencing God when you're treating God as the end in and of himself. When you're relating to God as the ultimate end, as the one who is supremely relevant, so relevant that your life revolves around him, not his life revolving around you, then you know you're relating to God for who he is. And unless you relate to God as the ultimate end in and of himself, then you're just not going to be, uh, you're not going to be experiencing God. You're going to be relating God like a tool. Uh, you're going to be relating to God like a means to an end, but God is not a means to an end. You don't relate to God like a donut lady and expect to actually experience God you're experiencing the donut lady or somebody else who's just a means to an end. And, and here's what I mean by that. Last week, I'd mentioned in the sermon that when I was in South Texas, when Gene and I were down there and we planted a church, this about 20 years ago, uh, for a time, our church had a physical location next to a, a, a coffee and donut shop, and I wanted to patronize the, the neighbor's. And so I would make appointments with people to meet at the donut shop, but I had to stop meeting there because the lady who ran the donut shop would constantly pull up a chair and sit down and dominate the conversation. So I couldn't have conversations with people. So I quit going, and I never had the heart to tell her, listen, I'm not here for you. You're just the the means to the donuts. I'm, I'm not here for you. I'm here for the people at the table. I'm here for the atmosphere. I'm here for the coffee. But it's not about you. You're just a means to another end. Sorry, I thought we had a business contract here, not a personal one. Now, some people, unfortunately, relate to God like that. It's not a personal relationship. It's more like, God, you're a means to an end. I'm here for the strength. I'm here for the power. I'm here for the positive, uplifting experience. I'm here to meet people. I'm here to network. But I'm not really here for you. And so I'm just here for the maple ice donuts, you know, the good tasting coffee. I'm here to meet with some friends but God, I don't want you to pull up a chair to my table and start dominating the conversation and I'm surely not here for you to dominate my life. If that's your attitude toward God, you're not experiencing God. Because God's not a means to an end. He's the destination. And if you're relating to Him as a means to something else, then something else is, is your true God. It's not God. Now the question then is, well, how do I, how do I relate to God like this? How do I, how do I experience God in my life if I can't ex, or let me put this up, go ahead and put it on the screen because I think this is worth people writing down if you're at home. You experience God only to the degree that you relate to God as the end in and of himself. To the degree that you're relating to him as a means to an end, you're not actually relating to God. Now, sometimes people are on kind of a scale or we're in process, we come like little children using God, like, oh, you know, God, give me that close parking space, and we name it and claim it, and then God comes through for us, and we go, yay, thank you for that close parking spot, or for an upgrade on my iPad, or whatever it is that you're claiming and using God to get to. God is so gracious, he doesn't turn our backs on him in those moments when we treat him like children will sometimes treat their parents. You're just the the pocket, uh, with the money in it or something. We still love our children. God still loves us, but you're not going to be experiencing the father's love uh, unless you're treating him as the father who truly deeply loves you. Okay. So how, how do we experience God in our lives? The text that we just read gives us several clues. And one of those things is you have to know that God has given himself to you before you'll ever find your life in him. That is to say, we love him because he first loved us. It's not safe for us to give ourselves wholeheartedly to God until we see what is represented by the by the juice and the bread. And until we see that God has unreservedly given himself to us, we are not really in a safe place to give ourselves unreservedly to him. The table says God has held nothing back from you, and so you should hold nothing back from him. You You can be safe in holding nothing back from him. Uh, and until you see that, you're not going to experience God for who he is with unreserved uh, passion for you and the unreserved passion in response. Now, we spent some time on that last week. We don't have time to go backwards. Let's move forward. Uh, the next thing that is so important for us to understand if we're going to experience God is we have to be actively engaged in the experience of God. Uh, you see this. That was largely the point of the first part of this service, the call to worship, and that is David is engaged. You you sing. You You praise, you lift your hands, you behold, you think, you consider, you remember, you rejoice, you eat, you partake. There's an action that takes place, a focused, intentional, open action that takes place in order to know God. In fact, it all goes together, actively being engaged and knowing God for who he is. Because if God were just a a tool, if God were just a an afterthought. If God were just the white noise in the background, then it would be entirely appropriate for you to not be actively engaged. But if God is the point, if he is the one that you're after, of course you're going to be actively, thoroughly engaged. It'd be like going out on a date and and this person is the one. So you're going to focus on them. You're going to look into their eyes. You're going to speak to them. You're going to listen when they talk and you're not listening for the next thing you're going to say. You're just actually into them and, and you ask questions. You're not texting other people you're not instagramming you're not checking you know updates on the stock market you're actually into this other person because they're not the afterthought to the degree that god is not an afterthought to you you're going to actually actively be engaged and then we can put up the next quote on the screen because maybe it's helpful to you you'll never experience god in your life as long as you relate to god as the background noise of your life we see this with regards to david experiencing god like, God, you're my God, and he says, earnestly, I seek you. Now, some translations will say eagerly, I seek you, but we all know that earnestly is a much better, much stronger word, but whether you're talking about early in the morning or if you're talking about being passionate and enthusiastic throughout the day, the way in which we seek God says a lot about how we value God or who we deem God to be. And if he is the one that you are pursuing, if he is the destination and not the bridge, you're going to be actively engaged, which is why it's kind of an insult if if, the, if while you're in a worship service, you're doing multiple other tasks that are really unrelated. And I was just kind of kidding about the texting because we're engaged here. But if you're actually doing things that are not connected to, to the worship service, you are in that moment communicating something to God and something to yourself about God's unimportance that he's not supremely relevant, that your life doesn't revolve around him, that he needs to revolve around you. And when you're good and ready, God can do something for you because your life is mainly about you. It's not about him. So active engagement says something positive. Passive disengagement says something entirely negative, and it will send your life down a trajectory in a very, very negative way. So sometimes I kind of feel like when it comes to tuning in, not just to this, but like Christian broadcasting in general, if that's just the background noise, it'd be better off if we were listening to something else, frankly. We need to be focused in a Bible study. We need to be focused in a worship service that communicates something. So if you want to experience God, number one, you've got to recognize that he has given himself to you, and then you'll find your life in him. And then number two, you've got to be actively engaged in the experience of God. But beyond that, number three, we also need to address this whole concern of appetite. Okay, let me explain what I mean by this. Uh, Let's put the next quote on the screen. One of the ways that you know you found God is you develop a spiritual appetite. Now, this seems a little strange, but oddly enough, one of the indications that God is drawing you to himself or that you're in a relationship with God, is you feel like you're too far from God and that you actually need to move closer. It seems a little strange for David to say, oh, God, you're my God. Like, God, you've given yourself to me. You've made yourself obligated to me. I have a relationship with you. you you've held nothing back from me, and I'm seeking you. God, you're my God. And we say, God, you're my father. I'm in your life. You've adopted me as your son, and I'm still seeking after you. Do those two things go together? That doesn't actually seem to, go the, seem to go together if you're thinking about an object. If you find an object, a thing, like I was just looking for the bread, I was looking for the plate. Okay, found it. Seeking's done. Why is the seeking done? Because this is just an object. But when, you, when you're dealing with a person, or you're dealing with a personal relationship, or you're dealing with a parent-child relationship, or a love relationship between a, a bride and a groom, well, you find, but you continue to seek. Because because you have found the one, let me put it to you like this. Several months ago, I was talking with John Lawton, and uh, he came by the office and said, "Ernest, you might know that I've been dating this you know wonderful lady, Sid, and um, and I love her. She's wonderful. She's beautiful, and I just I want to know more, and I want to experience more, and I I want to explore life with her. And what do I do? And and I said, well, you need to get married. Let's do that by the end of the week. And he said, okay. Uh, but he didn't get married at the end of the week. He took until the end of the next week because some people take their sweet time, but I digress. Here's the point. When you find the one, you know what you want? You want more. And, and when the meal is really good, you want you want more in a way that doesn't actually contradict being satisfied. I mean, David in, in the Psalm says, my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. You know how it is when you eat really rich food? You say, man, I am stuffed. I'm never going to eat again. It's Thanksgiving. And then... Like, no kidding, an hour later, after you thought you were so full, you were never going to eat again, you're back eating more rich food. That's how rich food is. It satisfies and it addicts you. You want to go back for more, you just can't You can't stop eating it. That's how it is in a personal relationship. That's how it is with God. You find and you want more. You find and you go, oh, I'm too far away. I feel like I'm missing out. I've got to get in on more, 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 more. That's how you know you've met God. That's how you know you've met the one. You, you want more and, and you don't want to stop. Now, some of you maybe are thinking, okay, Ernest, this is where you're starting to lose me because I already recognize Jesus Christ, the son of God, that God has given himself to me and him. He's held nothing back from me. I get all that theology. I get it. I buy that. That's what the Bible teaches. And I also try to be disciplined. I go to church, I try to read my Bible and all the rest, but I'm just not like David. I'm not like David who says, my soul is satisfied with the richest of foods. Actually, when it comes to my experience with God, you might say, it feels like I'm eating a bologna sandwich. It's just kind of flat, nothing really that exciting there. What's going on? Well, there's a reason for this. Okay. There is a reason why a Christian who's even trying to be disciplined doesn't, necessarily experience god as the richest of foods give me more 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 and and the big reason is this you've spoiled your appetite if you don't want an appetite if you don't have an appetite for god it's because you've developed an appetite for something else your appetite needs fixing now the good news is if your appetite needs fixing you, you can you can retrain it okay it can be restored but you've got to change your appetite here's what i mean when I was younger, my mom, like many of your moms, said, don't eat the cookies. Get out of the cookie jar. Don't go to the gallon of ice cream in the freezer. If you eat, you know, 15 minutes or 30 minutes before, you're going to come to the table and you're not going to be hungry. And uh, I always, of course, obeyed my mom. So I don't know what that experience is like. But my brother, Nathan, does. And, uh, no, actually, uh, yeah, I know. You know. Shame on you people. You got your hand in the cookie jar, you came to the table, and you know what happened? Here's what happened. You were not hungry, and your mom was not happy. You know why your mom was not happy? Two reasons, and they're good reasons. One, your mom knew you needed what was set on the table. She know she knows your body needs the protein, and it needs the vitamins, and it needs the fiber, and all the stuff that's in good, healthy meals. And you weren't hungry for what you needed, but you needed it, but you still weren't hungry for it. And you didn't get it because you'd spoiled your appetite. The second reason mom was not happy was not just because of you, but because of the way that you looked toward her. She spent, you know, 30 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe in some cases longer, cooking the meal for you. And she wanted you to appreciate that what she had put on the table was an act of grace. It was an act of love. It was an act of sacrifice. And you came to the table and you said, I don't want your love, I don't want your sacrifice, I don't really care. Coming to the table is not just about the food, it's about the relationship with the person who has given you the food. It's about your relationship with the person at the table. Now, here's my question. When it comes to, okay, when it comes to pulling up a chair to the table and enjoying what God has given by his grace, what he has prepared... Do you think in this regard that God is any different than your earthly mother? You think your heavenly father is different than your earthly mother, that he doesn't care if you get what you really need, that he doesn't care if you are dispassionate about what he's prepared? He's just like your earthly mother in this regard. So you know what you owe to God? A better appetite. Now, you know how it is when you develop an appetite for things that you shouldn't Want or shouldn't want in excess. If you develop an appetite for sugar, and you eat too much sugar, you can't get enough of the sugar. Your body spins out of control into obesity. And if you develop an an appetite or a passion for oxycontin, your your whole life goes down the drain. And if you develop an appetite and appreciation for the New England Patriots and Tom Brady gets traded, your life gets deflated. You've got to be careful to have an appetite for what is good, okay? Now, in all seriousness, what does that mean? That means repent, okay? That just means turn away from the things that are not doing your body good or your soul good. It means you turn away from the sin, but not just the capital S sin, the obvious things like the sex and the power and the money and all the rest. It, It could be the other things that just sort of weigh you down, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, we've got to turn away from the sin that so easily entangles, but also the things that will burden you. So you've got to be careful to turn away from that stuff. And sometimes it may not seem so bad on the surface of things, but if you're not careful and you partake too much of what the world gives, even if it's not terrible, you know, like a cherry pie isn't bad, but if you eat too much of what the world gives you, here's what happens. The world will begin to consume you. Some things that are appropriate in moderation are just not really helpful if they're taken in excess and they begin to dominate your life. I love the way that um, John Piper puts it. This is in his book, Hunger for God. He says, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven but endless nibbling, at the table of the world, it is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. A- along those lines, I just read a, a book. It's a short story by Anton Chekhov. It's, uh, he was a 19th century Russian writer. And so even though it was a short story, it's a long short story, but it's actually pretty good. And the the, the book, it, it's entitled The Bet. It revolves around these two guys who are engaged in a wager with one another. One is a middle-aged banker who's very, very wealthy, and the other is a 25-year-old lawyer who's not so wealthy. And they're debating the death penalty and what is most compassionate for those who've been convicted of terrible crimes. And, and the older banker, the one who's so rich, says, well, the executioner kills instantly, whereas solitary confinement kills a person slowly over a period of years. And he argues that the death penalty is actually much more gracious and the lawyer disagrees completely and he says, well, I, it, you know, it's much better to be alive under any kind of condition than to not be alive at all. And so they debate and the banker makes this wager. He, sa- he says, I'll bet you two million rubles that you can't survive five years in solitary confinement. And the lawyer says, well, I'll take it for 15. I'll go 15 years if it's two million rubles on the line. So they agree the lawyer goes into solitary confinement and making a short story even shorter, here's what happens. After being in solitary confinement for 15 years, the, the lawyer loses his taste for the things of this world. All of the things that had a grip on him before, like money and power and prestige and position, they just lost their appeal to him. And so when he got out of prison, he basically told the, the rich banker, I don't even want your 2 million rubles. He just refused the money because he had been liberated from the things of this world and he began to care about the things that really, really mattered. And at least at least part of the point of Chekhov's story is, on occasion, maybe we ought to thank God for times of deprivation where we begin to see what really matters because when you develop a hunger for what really matters, you seek it and and you find it. So if you want to have the appetite for God, get rid of the things that are spoiling the appetite. Okay, there's one more thing that's super important with regards to, to understanding uh, or experiencing God in your life, and that is you've just got to remember the God who saves. David does that really clearly in Psalm 63. I love this. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. David remembers the God who is his help, the God who saves. And, of course, we remember Jesus because the word Jesus means the God who saves. I mean, it's it's from Yeshu, which is, which is the Greek word based on the Hebrew word Yeshua, and it just means to rescue or to deliver. It's all in the name. God saves, he rescues, and we have to remember I uh, I am a little bit of a cynical person, those of you who know me recognize that, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to change, but I was reading through Psalm 63, and I came to that one part where David says, your love is better than life, and it's true, God's love is better than life. But David is having kind of a youth camp moment because he's out in the wilderness, and he's got nothing better to do but think about God, and he has this moment, and I'm just thinking, okay, David, right now you think God is better than life, but... What about after the army that's chasing you down gets defeated? What about after you get back on your throne? How are you going to feel three months from now or three years from now? Is God still going to be better than life to you? And I'm just thinking, probably not. You know why? Here's why I say that. People tend to forget. I've heard people say things like, I'll never take live sports for granted ever again. Isn't it just cruel that at the time when we're, when we're at home and we're watching TV, there's no live sports on TV. This is, this is what's got me thinking along the lines of a conspiracy, frankly. I mean, this, this is absolute total cruelty that that would happen. But some people, I, I'll never take live sports for granted again. I'll never take for granted the fact that I can go to Starbucks and sit there and, and read and I'll never take handshakes for granted. I'll never take, you know, hugs for granted ever again. Yeah, right. Three weeks after things return to normal, three months after things return to normal, we're gonna forget. That's just our nature. Now, God doesn't forget. David, David, he's there, you know, lying on his bed at night, you know, I remember you, I I remember everything, I'm, I'll never forget through the wakes of, I'm, I'm waking up in the middle of the night and I'm thinking about you, God. Okay, but David sleeps. Sometimes he's not thinking. We fall asleep. God never sleeps. He always has you on his mind. And even though we forget him, God doesn't hold that against us. What God does is he says, remember. So Jesus knew the tendency of his disciples to forget. And that's why he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember. Remember me. Because you'll forget. Wash your hands. Don't be a dope. Use water and soap. We say that. We forget. We have to say it again. You get out of it what you put into it. We know that, but we need to be reminded of that. Jesus says, as often as you eat this bread, drink of this cup, remember me. We need to remember. So hopefully as we remember together, as we taste and see that the Lord is good, we'll experience him afresh and anew. This is why we do this. Because God shows up in these simple moments. When we remember, we don't just remember that God has given everything to us. We don't just remember that he never lost his hunger and thirst for us. We, we don't just re- remember that God had an appetite for you and me that defies all reason. We remember that God wants us to remember because he wants us to experience him the same way that he loves us. It, it just doesn't get any better than this. Let's bow for a word of prayer before we partake of the elements together. Father, thank you so much for the love that you've given us, the price that was paid. We know that we have sinned, we've fallen short, but Jesus Christ came and he lived the life we should have lived and then he died the death we should have died. He held nothing back from us. We did not deserve this, but Jesus by his grace gave us everything that we need. And then he invites us into a relationship where we can experience afresh and anew day by day. The goodness of God right smack dab in the middle of our lives. And, and, And God, you love us so much that you not only sent your son to take care of business, but you sent your son so that we could be in a living vital relationship with you. This wasn't just a transaction that occurred. It was a personal invitation for us to pull up to the table. The the table that you set by your grace through your son's broken body and shed blood. You are hungry for a relationship with us. It humbles us to know this. Lord, may we be similarly hungry and thirsty for this vital living relationship with you. God, I don't know who is is out there watching. I I have no idea. Lord, if there are any who have not yet stepped into a personal relationship with you, I would just encourage them to simply pray right where they are to you. If you're out there somewhere, you just pray to God, God, I know that I've sinned, I've fallen short. I know I've done wrong and I need forgiven. I need to be forgiven of my sin. I, I, I need what it is that God has offered. Grace, love, forgiveness. And that grace, love and forgiveness aren't just ideas out there floating around god in space and time came suffered on the cross took my place died on my behalf so that i would get the life that he deserved and so god in this moment i just want to receive christ as my savior and lord i want to trust in what it is that you've done for me and you've done everything for me i need to only trust in jesus so lord i'm just saying right now i trust you As my Savior and Lord, I trust what you did on the cross. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for being hungry for a relationship with me, thirsty to know me better. Lord, may I return the favor, not because it's a contract or I'm earning something, but because by your grace, you brought me into the family. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for drawing me near. And now, God, that I found you, I want to seek you all the more. In Christ's name, amen.